0: I'm Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. What happened in Egypt during the 10 plagues? You ever ask yourself that? Approaching the matter from a scientific perspective, our teacher Will Barlow brings to light some interesting connections. Probably most of us think God's miracles are akin to magical interventions where he breaks the laws of nature to perform a supernatural feat. As we saw last time, the Bible doesn't require that view, nor does it shy away from offering details occasionally, about how God achieved the miraculous. Drawing on the work of Colin Humphreys, Barlow takes a close look at the events surrounding Israel's exit from Egypt, including the timing of the event, the number of people involved, the 10 plagues, and the location of Mount Sinai. Here now is episode 476, part 15 of our Scripture and Science class, What Happened in the Exodus with Will Barlow. (laughs)
1: Well, welcome back to Scripture and Science. We're in session 15. In the last session, we talked a little bit about miracles. And we talked about uh, the definition of miracles and how we can think about uh, miracles in relationship to our current understanding of science and possible holes in our understanding of science in relationship to God's understanding as creator of the scientific realm. And so in this session, what I'd really like to do is focus in on the Exodus. I think the exodus is a fascinating uh, moment in Israel's history. There's a lot of things to think about. And I think it makes for a really great case study because a lot of things happened. And we're going to talk about the 10 plagues, for example, as being miraculous events caused by possible multiple different scientific explanations. I'll give a a broad version. Then I'm going to sort of give a more detailed view of uh, Colin Humphreys' perspective. Uh, We're going to talk about the background behind the exodus, some background questions that we have. We're going to talk about the 10 plagues. Uh, We've already talked about the Red Sea crossing enough, but we will mention it briefly. And then we'll talk about a possible route at the end. And so for this session, I drew essentially from the book, The Miracles of Exodus by Colin Humphreys. Colin Humphreys is a doctor. He's a PhD in physics, uh, got his PhD in physics from Cambridge. He's also an expert in chemistry, astronomy, and geology. And interestingly, he spent a great deal of time and effort researching ways to reconcile scripture and science. And what I hope we're going to see with his approach, even though I'm sketching it out from his book, uh, which I highly recommend, it's, it's probably outside of the Bible, which obviously is my favorite book of all time. It's in that top five beyond the Bible list for me personally because of how he approaches scripture, how he approaches scripture and relating scripture and science together. I think what we're going to see with his approach is that he's text-driven. He's not science-driven. Even though he's a professional scientist, he's very textually driven. He wants to take the text, add its word, understand it, and then moving from that, uh, integrate the science into it. And he asks some really great questions about different things. So we're going to handle some background questions to begin. And the first background question is dating the Exodus. And again, this isn't necessarily important from a miracles perspective, whether the Exodus happened in 1450 BC or 1300 BC doesn't affect any of the mechanism or anything like that. I wanted to provide a couple of these things because it fills out the story really of the Exodus, how we can think about it historically. But I think it also provides a great example for how uh, colin humphreys thinks through things from a scriptural perspective primarily and then going into going into the science secondarily so taking the evidence from exodus 1-1 for example it says the hebrews built the city of Ramses, and we think from a historical perspective you know egyptology it's not a perfect science but from a historical perspective it's pretty darn close you know they, they can do a pretty good job of, of putting ranges in there of years And uh, so 1300 B.C. seems to be a pretty good answer for when the city of Ramses was built. And so if the Hebrews built it according to what the Bible says, then they must have still been there at 1300 B.C. But 1 Kings 6.1 seems to indicate that the exodus occurred 480 years before the temple. And again, we have a pretty good range for the building of Solomon's temple. And if we go back 480 years, that gives us approximately 1446 B.C., So it seems like there's a discontinuity here between the two different time frameworks that we have. And so what Colin Humphreys does is he uses biblical data. He uses biblical data to decide which date he likes better. And I think his approach is interesting. Now, do you have to agree with his approach? No. If you prefer the earlier date of 1450 approximately, then that's great. There are reasons to go with that date too. I just think Dr. Humphreys' approach is very interesting here. He believes that the later date is better because it's easier to reconcile historically. So he basically takes Exodus 111, where it says that the Hebrews built Ramses, and he says that is the city of Ramses that we can date to being built in 1300 BC. It's not another city that we don't know of or something like that that we can't find in the record historically or don't have easy a way to map the dating of it, for example. So then how can we understand the 480 years of 1 Kings 6-1? The first thing that he does is he looks at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint says 440 years, not 480 years. And that was sort of his first clue that maybe we're dealing with not an exact number of years, but maybe it could be an approximation based on a number of generations since the prior event. And so that led him to working through this idea of generations. Humphreys goes much further than this. Uh, He demonstrates using the biblical record, the biblical narrative, that there are 14 high priests starting from Aaron and ending at Azariah, the high priest at the time of the construction of the Temple of Solomon. So you've got 14 high priests. He goes through all the different accounts and he lines them up and he shows 14 generations using the different accounts because some of the accounts don't show all 14. Some have duplications at the end and that sort of a thing. But Aaron is two generations old, age 83, at the time of the Exodus. And Azariah isn't a newborn when Solomon's Temple is constructed. He's at least one generation old. So the approximation is you take 13 generations, you subtract 2, you add 1, you end up with 12 generations. If you conceive that each generation biblically is approximately 40 years, 12 times 40 gets you 480 years. So what Humphreys encourages us to do is is when we go to 1 Kings 6 and we, we see this number, 480 years, we actually should think in terms of 12 generations. And so the question then becomes, from a historical perspective, what was a generation actually? Well, if a generation is actually 30 years biologically from one generation to the next, then 12 times 30 would be 360 years. Then he goes to the historical data for the time, uh, that period of time to see what an average generation was according to the best historical records that we have. And he finds that the average generation was actually 25 years, 25 years from your birth to the birth of the next generation. And so that leads you to 300 years. Well, if you go with 300 years instead of 480 years, you end up putting Exodus 111 and 1 Kings 6 in harmony. Now, like I said... Is this the only way to reconcile these two passages? No. No, it's not the only way to reconcile these two passages. There are other ways to do it. You could say that Ramses, for example, was not the Ramses that we think was built in 1300. We could say it was a different city of Ramses. Or we could say that the date of 1300 is not right, that it should be an earlier date. It should be 1500 BC. Okay, so there are other ways of reconciling this. I thought this approach was interesting. And again, it's driven primarily by the text. He's trying to reconcile these two texts together. If you have your Bibles, we can we can turn to Numbers chapter 1. We'll, be, we'll read a couple verses from this. Uh, the book of Numbers is in part named because at the beginning of the book of Numbers, they number the people of Israel. And in chapter 1, verse 45, it's sort of a summation verse, it says, So all those listed of the people of Israel by their fathers' houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. So the question is, this would seem to imply that approximately 2 million people in total took part in the Exodus, okay? So the question is, is this right? Is this number, this 2 million people, right? Uh, We talked briefly about the Red Sea or Reed Sea crossing earlier. Think about crossing a relatively narrow part on dry land in between two bodies of water. How long would it have taken two million people to traverse that kind of a route? It's an interesting thought to consider. There are some scriptural problems with this large number too. According to Herodotus, an ancient Greek historian, 1,600,000 men in the Israelite army would have been larger than the Egyptian army and the armies of any of the nations in the Promised Land. So... In other words, if they have the numbers, why are they running, (laughs) running from the Egyptian army? So that's sort of the first question, trying to relate that that size of that army to the other armies in the historical period. There are scriptural problems, too, with this large number, not just sort of historical problems. Exodus 115 specifically names two Hebrew midwives. Again, that doesn't mean that there were only two midwives, but it is a strong biblical case that there were only two midwives, and that would be inadequate for a population of two million people. Two midwives handling so many births—that wouldn't—that wouldn't turn out well. Another interesting problem with the large number is Deuteronomy seven seven explicitly says that the Hebrews were quote the fewest of all the peoples. They weren't known for being a large group of people. And so again, this army. This group of people in the ancient world, this would have been a very large population on the scale of the ancient world. Uh, Two million people doesn't sound like a lot. A lot of our cities in modern times have two million people. But in the ancient world, especially living in a small subsection, Goshen, in Egypt, this seems like a lot of people to be living in that area. Uh, That would have been by far the largest Goshen, the city that people of Israel would have lived in at that time would have been the largest city possibly in the world at this time if the two million number is to be believed. Another problem with uh, the large number here, numbers 343 states that there were 22,273 firstborn males. Okay, so if you take that number that's in the army, that's 600,000, you approximate there's another 400,000 or so men to get about a one million total males, one million total females. Okay, so if there's only 22,273 firstborn males, you end up with an average family size of approximately 50 sons and 50 daughters. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you wanted to be a woman in that kind of a situation, (laughs) I think you'd be in some trouble there. You either would have to have some massive amounts of quadruplets and quintuplets, and still, that doesn't sound like fun to me. So there are problems with this 2 million number, and it's not just scientific. It's not just trying to get across the Red Sea in a, in a brief amount of time. It, it looks to, to Humphreys, and it looks to me, like we can take some of these numbers seriously because they're incredibly specific, like this 22,273. But this, this other number in the Hebrew, the 603,550, we're going to find out has an interesting basis to it. So how do we reconcile these things? Uh, the word translated thousand can also mean group. And it can, it's translated that way. It's sometimes family, clan, or it can be understood as a troop. When we're talking about, in this case, we're talking about people in the, in the army. It could be understood as troop. So what Humphreys does is he proposes the translation of troop instead of thousand. So when we're talking about the different naming of all the clans in numbers, he says we should, instead of using the word thousand, we should understand each of these as troop. And so to give an example... If you're still in Numbers 1, we can read verse 21 together and it says those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Well, instead of saying 46,000, you could understand this, according to Humphreys, as 46 troops and 500 men. And he says that and could be used mathematically. 46 troops, which is 500 men. Now, according to modern rules, 10 men per troop doesn't sound like enough. But what's really interesting, he did the historical research on this, and he found that 10 men per troop actually matches with clay tablets found around the same era in Tel Amarno. And that leads us to conclude that the total men, women, and children were approximately 20,000. He believes that the number of people that were involved as part of the the Exodus were about 20,000 people, men, women, and children. And so I think this is a very interesting view. I think it makes pretty good sense of the scripture and also of the logic concerning some of the issues around the Exodus. We can imagine that 20,000 people, it's a more manageable number of people for Moses. It's a more manageable number of people to actually cross the Red Sea. And it fits with the description in Deuteronomy seven, 7 of being the fewest of the peoples. So I'm not sure if Dr. Humphreys makes this kind of a calculation or argument from population. If you think about generations earlier, the children of Israel numbered 75 people. So 75 people or so, some uh, counts say 70, but just rounding that up to 75, 75 people came down in the time of Joseph and settled in Egypt. And so uh, there's a little bit of a debate about how long that lasted, that period of time between Joseph and Moses. Uh, The scripture in several spots says 430 years. If you look at the the genealogies, you end up with a much shorter time frame, about 132 years or so. So sort of shooting for the middle here, if we assume uh, 300 years has has elapsed between Joseph and Moses, the time of Moses, and the Exodus, uh, if you assume 2% population growth per year for 300 years, 75 people turns into 28,517 people which is very much on the scale of what Humphreys recommends with about 20,000 people, men, women, and children at the time of the Exodus. So to get to 2 million, what would you need to have from a growth perspective? Well, you would need to average 3.5% per year. And some of you might be thinking, well, the difference between 3.5% and 2% is is not that big of a deal. But in terms of population growth, that difference is actually astronomical. 2%, to give a basis, 2% is very similar to what the whole world had about 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, We're actually about 1% per year population growth right now, and that's with all of our modern scientific advancements, modern medicine, and all of that in play. Uh, I looked at some historical sources for this part of the world in Egypt, and historical sources estimate uh, an average population growth in Egypt during this era would be close to 0.02% a year. Again, you've got to think about infant mortality rates, And then just medicine was not very good, as we'll talk about in a later session. And so a lot of people died. There wasn't a lot of large population advancement. And so 2% seems reasonable to me for a period of about 300 years. That seems like a reasonable estimate. It gets us close to Humphreys' number. And that shows you how much, in comparison, God was blessing the Hebrew population in the context of the the larger Egyptian population, which is in complete accord with uh, what we understand from Scripture. And so that's just a little bit about the population growth perspective on on this as well. So now transitioning to the plagues of Egypt. Uh, There are multiple ways to reconcile these plagues with the scientific data. One of them, uh, which I won't go into really hardly at all, just to mention it, is to talk about the relationship between um, ancient volcanic eruptions and how that would have led over time to possible plagues in order there's i think um, a documentary that someone did on that and i'm sure there're books out there on that i think it was like the santorini explosion uh, was a possible player in this and so that's where like for example they get the darkness was the the cloud from santorini uh, made its way to egypt during that time anyway that's that's one perspective humphrey's perspective is a little bit different he uses a more localized perspective and doesn't rely on a volcanic activity for that piece of it. He does rely on volcanic activity for a later piece of it uh, So I'm going to read uh, from page 23 of his book what he says about The idea of miracles and how God works within the natural laws He says the concept that for the ancient Israelites the miracles of God involved God displaying his power through control of natural events like earthquakes is so important So, Humphreys holds a view similar to what I view of miracles that God generally works through natural events, through the laws of physics, through the laws of nature as we uh, can understand them. And he provides a coherent explanation for uh, the plagues themselves, as well as the ordering of the plagues. And so, we're going to walk through the plagues now. Uh, You have the Nile turned to blood, then you've got the plague of the frogs, you've got gnats, you've got flies then the death of livestock, then boils, then you've got the plague of hail, then locusts, then darkness, and then what many people call the plague of the firstborn, where all the firstborn humans and animals died in Egypt, and the children of Israel were set apart and kept from that. So I'm just going to say at the outset that I like Humphreys' explanations for the first nine plagues. He offers a naturalistic explanation for the tenth plague, And it's an interesting naturalistic explanation for the 10th Plague. But I tend to think that the 10th Plague was more supernatural. (laughs) I tend to think that it was more involved than what he provides. So I'll just give that caveat here at the beginning. All right, here are the plagues in order. The first plague is the Nile turned to blood. What Humphrey says about that is that uh, during that time of year, which he times it in September at the high of the Nile, the Nile would have carried a lot of extra red soil. And then in addition to that, you could have a red tide of harmful algae blooms that could come in and contaminate the water. And we see red tides uh, in different parts of the world today. We see red tides, for example, the, the uh, University of Alabama's, you know, their, their, uh, the name for their sports team is the Alabama Crimson Tide, because they get red tides every year or very often off the coast of Alabama. So we we've, we've see harmful algae blooms and red tide all over the place in modern times. And he thinks maybe this is what happened here. And what this would have done is it would have leached all the oxygen and would have killed the fish. Because it would have taken all the oxygen out of the water. And you kill the fish. Well, what happens when you kill fish? They start to stink. They start to decay. And that kind of decay would have led the frogs and driven them out of the Nile. And he times this in September and October, at the height of when frogs would be developing and and hopping. So then you have frogs leaving their natural environment in search of food and other things. And there you go. You have them coming into people's homes and attracted to light and things like that. If we accept that the the fish are dead, then all of a sudden this next plague seems to make natural sense, that the frogs would, would be coming out. Now, what happens when frogs leave their environment? you have gnats building up. And he ties them to a specific type of midges. Um, Now they're able to reproduce in way more numbers than usual and cause way more damage than usual because the frogs and the toads are gone. So the first plague led to the second plague. The second plague has led to the third plague. And then the plague four is similar. Uh, The flies, he ties it to the stable fly. The stable fly has a terrible bite that punctures the skin and can cause infection. And these flies swarm and reproduce quickly. And again, he ties this to November. So you've got the frogs leaving. You've got these midges and these stable flies reproducing at much higher rates than usual because their predators are gone. And so now you have an overabundance of these midges and the stable fly. Well, now, what's the next plague? The next plague is the plague of the livestock. A lot of the livestock died. And so what Humphreys does is he looks at different... Viruses that would affect hooved animals and not humans. And he identifies two, the African horse sickness, and he identifies the blue tongue. And those two viruses spread by the specific midges that he identified and that uh, lived in that part of the world at that time. And those only affect hooved animals and not humans. And so he ties this to the November and December timeframe. So now you've got these uh, midges coming out in large numbers and now they're they've bitten these livestock and these viruses are spreading and and matches the biblical record that it only affected hoof animals and it did not affect the humans no people died because of the fifth plague but the sixth plague plague did affect humans with boils and the staple fly is known to favor biting the lower bodies this squares with deuteronomy 28 35 which was a description of attacking the legs first and the stable fly carries a bacteria that causes skin infection hence that's where you get the boils and so uh, humphreys ties this to december and january time frame so as we've seen these first six plagues work very well together in harmony and, and the timing works out just great now what he does is he tries to find time markers uh, in the record to help make sure that his thinking about this is correct. What's interesting with the 7th is you've got hail, and Exodus nine thirty one thirty two 32 notes that flax and barley were destroyed. So what he does is he looks into the historical record, into Egyptian sources, and says, well, were flax and barley around in this February-March timeline? And the answer is yes. Flax and barley would have been both in the fields at this time. He points out that hail destroying flax and barley fits his timeline for all the other plagues. Then you've got the plague of locusts. Well, Exodus 9.33 suggests that the land was very wet. That's the perfect conditions for locusts to lay eggs. The other thing that's really interesting he points out about the biblical description of the locusts is locusts are known to travel on wind like Exodus 10.13 says. So this is another reinforcement that the biblical record uh, is accurate scientifically. So you have hail, hail, a heavy hail and rainstorm, which leads to land being very wet, which is the perfect conditions for locusts to lay eggs. And so these two plagues seem to go together very nicely. Then the last two are interesting because of the timing of things. So the, the ninth one, the Plague of Darkness, because of all the assumptions he's made, and all the points he's made at this point, and the time that he's built, he times this to March. Well, it turns out, he thinks that this was, could have been caused by a multi-day sandstorm known as a compson. Extra red soil deposits from the first plague could have made this particularly severe. So you have the water subsiding, you have wind coming in, you've got excess red soil deposit from the first plague, and that could have lead to a heavy sandstorm. Uh, the beautiful thing that we'll get to in a little bit is sandstorms are usually localized. So it's possible that the sandstorm affected the area around the Nile Delta without affecting Goshen, which would have been miles away where the Hebrews lived. Uh, and so that could explain, uh, we'll, and we'll get into that in more detail later. Now, his, again, his view on the 10th plague is a naturalistic explanation of it. Um, and he believes that throughout this whole process, you have to think about the Egyptians. They were... They're going through all these things. These were all indictments of their gods. Their their worldview is getting absolutely rocked right now. Their supply chain is getting rocked right now. Uh, We are starting to experience that now a little bit here, even in in modern America through the pandemic. They are in like worst case scenario land. If they weren't in worst case scenario land, they wouldn't store wet grain. They would know not to store wet grain. But because of all things that have happened before this, his theory is that they still did store wet grain and then when the sandstorm came in, it kept them from moving the grain around or managing that situation better for the period of three days. So essentially you're baking this bacteria, you're baking these uh, things inside of these granaries and he thinks that this led to the development of mycotoxins on the grain. And so then why would only the firstborns be affected Well, because if you're having supply chain issues, who's the most important child? The firstborn child, your heir. Who's the most important animal? The firstborn animals had priority because of the temple service, because of the religious issues. So he thinks that either the firstborn animals and and children would have been the only ones fed, period, from the granaries, or that they were fed double or triple portions of what everyone else received. So everyone else received not enough food to get enough of the issue uh, to die, and only the firstborns had enough of the mycotoxins to die. My take on that is that this is a very interesting theory, but I don't think it works with the whole point of the biblical record, the idea of the Passover, the specific language of the Passover, being that the destroyer was passing over those houses. I think that leads us more in a supernatural direction. If we take a naturalistic approach, I think this is an interesting direction to go. So then we have to answer the question, well, why were the Israelites unaffected by the plagues? Um, and this is what Humphreys says. I have a, this is a long multiple slide quote here. It says, the Israelite slaves lived in their own separate geographical location, the land of Goshen, which almost certainly was not in the prime property market area next to the high, highly desirable waters of the Nile, which the Egyptians would have kept for themselves. So again, the Egyptians would have lived in the Nile Delta and were... Identifying Goshen as being far away, you know, far enough away from that. We have earlier identified the plague of the gnats with the midge and the plague of the flies with the stable fly. Both would have been concentrated around the Nile. In addition, both the midge and the stable fly are weak flyers with a range of less than a mile. Okay, so he's saying if Goshen was further away than one mile from the Nile Delta, it would uh, show you how uh, some of these plagues affected, for geographical reasons, the Egyptians only and not the Israelites this is way he says about the later ones he said hailstorms and sandstorms are frequently very localized so it's easy to see that the geographically separate region of Goshen could have been spared by both the hailstorms and the sandstorms causing the 3 days of darkness so then the, to finish out the quote here he says the crops of the Israelites therefore would not have been stored damp in sand-covered stores and thus would not have developed mycotoxins, and the Israelites and their livestock would not have been poisoned by them. So, so that is his reason for why the plagues affected the Egyptians and not the Israelites. He's saying because Goshen was probably far enough away from the Nile Delta, they wouldn't have gotten all these different plagues. I think that's interesting. I think that works for the first nine plagues. Now, again, I'm not sure it works for the 10th plague. To conclude, I wanted to bring up some very interesting things. And again, I just highly recommend this book. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's worth reading the whole thing cover to cover and seeing his whole argument develop for it. But Humphreys also uses biblical, historical, and geographical information to determine a possible route for the Exodus. And I, I do like his route for a couple of reasons. And I'm going to sort of bullet point these. Um, he has a, the Red Sea crossing at a location where backtracking was impossible And the water was somewhat shallow. It's the Gulf of Aqaba. So if you look at a map, it's at the upper point, one of the upper points of the Red Sea. So he has it at a location uh, where the water is a little more shallow, where a strong directional wind could provide the force necessary to split that water and for them to walk across on dry land. It also is a location that has reeds for those of you interested in Sea of Reed translation versus Sea of the Red Sea translation. Um, so it sort of checks off all those boxes. Uh, he also points out that the biblical description of the pillar by fire, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, along with the terrifying description of Mount Sinai and Exodus, that both of these things are consistent with a volcano. So he believes that the actual Mount Sinai is not the one that you see on maps. It's not the one that tourists visit all the time and stuff like that. It's actually a volcano. Then he goes to Galatians and he points out that Galatians says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia, and so he does a geographical sketch of how far you could have this twenty thousand group of people make the trek uh, in a in the timeline that the, that X's provides, and he identifies three volcanoes that fits, and then he picks one of them, Mount badir So he, I'm just pointing out in very brief detail the lengths that Colin Humphreys goes to, to get his route. And I think he's done some fantastic work. And along the way, Humphreys explains all sorts of stuff. Like we talked about water from a rock in the prior one. He thinks that it's sandstone. He talks about manna, how manning could have worked. And he also talks about all the time markers in between. And, and he really walks through every aspect of the Exodus and explains how the timeline makes sense, how the miracles make sense. I think he does a remarkable job with it. So again, highly recommend uh, The Miracles of Exodus by Colin Humphreys. Uh, It's not just because he's a physicist and I'm a physicist. (laughs) Uh, It's because he's put in a lot of effort to reconciling the scripture with the historical record, with the scientific uh, possible explanations for things. I think he's done a remarkable job. So I think that was a fascinating case study for us in how we can reconcile scripture and science together and using a lot of different data points, using historical data points to help us, using geographical data points to help us along the way. It's not just the hard sciences that can help us. The social sciences can help us as well. That's what I wanted to say about the miracles of Exodus. Thank you.
0: Well, that brings this presentation to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitudio.org, find episode 476, what happened in the Exodus, and leave your feedback on the site if you would like. Certainly some interesting thoughts raised there about what happened in the Exodus. Just to let you know what we have coming up for the start of 2023, I've got uh, two interviews lined up. The first is with Tom Housty of Akron, Ohio, who has begun a new ministry called Unitarian Anabaptist. And that's a website as well as a YouTube channel. And I'll be interviewing him next week and posting that. And then the week after that, I have an interview from Justin Bailey on the book Interpreting Your World and looking at the whole issue of understanding the culture and being able to reach people where they're at. So stay tuned for those two. And then I'm planning to launch into an epic early church history class 20 plus episodes covering all kinds of different topics that are important to understand and that really change the face of Christianity when they happen. So stay tuned for all that. If you'd like to support Restitudio, you can do that on our website, restitudio.org. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.